Good morning again. My name is Josue Pineda, like I said earlier. Um, today's passage we're looking at Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. I made the joke last time that I was preaching that I'm shorter than Luke, and so I'll make it again. And I gotta fix the mic, and it's gonna sound weird. That's what I'm telling you. Um, yeah, I gotta get like a little platform so at least I appear to be taller than I am. I don't think it'll help. Uh, can't fight genetics. So let's go to Philippians. <laughs> Sorry. Chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Uh, Paul writes Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you that we could gather here and look into your word. Help me, Lord, as I preach. Help us as we gather and we look into your scriptures. Help us to be strengthened and encouraged and united. And help us to look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, I have a question to begin the sermon. And the question is, how do you interact with those who are struggling? How do you interact with those who are going through a hard time. Um, I've been thinking about this question a lot lately and the different responses that I've experienced or have done. And you can, of course, challenge someone who is struggling or fearful and exhort them to do better and lift themselves up by the bootstraps. You can comfort someone who is struggling and you can try to reassure them or validate them. You can run away from those who are struggling uh, since dealing with people can be messy. Uh, oftentimes we can feel like we don't have enough to give. Right? What is helpful and how these things should be addressed, what's the right approach, depends entirely on the situation and the person. And I'm not necessarily a proponent of a particular way. But how should we respond when we struggle? How should we respond to those that face adversity, corporately or individually? Um, many years ago, I had a very close friend of mine die suddenly and tragically, you know? And uh, I have a hard time sharing in general. And so I was driving with somebody and then they looked at me and they said, oh, are you sad about it? Now you should blame yourself. You should have reached out more. Don't respond like that, right? That was not appropriate. But how do you, what do you say to people who are struggling or messy? We see Paul beginning to wrestle with these deep questions. We took a look at the letter to the Philippians. This letter contains many beautiful themes. I say this every time I preach, but I like saying it, so I'm gonna say it again. It contains beautiful themes such as humility, joy, deep Christology, eschatology, living with a gospel mindset, friendship, and today's point, courage and unity. Today's passage, we engage with one of the most beautiful themes of the letter. 
the Philippian church is in the midst of both internal tensions and external pressures. And in this week's passage, Paul begins to address their external pressures, their adversaries. He begins to address their concerns by aiming to encourage them and exhort them in the, in the manner in which they should face struggles. He begins to answer that question, how should we deal with those that face adversity? And today we will see what Paul tells those who are struggling. And we will see from this dialogue that because of Jesus, because he saves us, we can be united and we can be courageous in the face of adversity. And we will see that in two points. First point, we will see how in the gospel we can be united through adversity. And the second point, how in the gospel we can have courage in the midst of adversity and in the midst of struggle. So first point, in the gospel we can be united through adversity. And that's verse 27, which I will read again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul transitions. In verses 1 through 26, he has been explaining to them the purpose of his ministry. He talks about his own struggles, and now he begins to deal with them. He commands them, but his commands are never without provision, right? He calls them to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, and Paul often does things like this in his letters to challenge the Philippians. He has just expressed to them his desire for them to continue growing, and he begins to describe to them the manner in which they are to grow. And he goes through four phrases to explain it which are each taken encouraging, but also helps us to understand what is meant by a life that is worthy of the gospel. He says, I want you to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Uh, many of us would add different things to that, but what he does is he does four phrases, right? Four descriptions to get them to understand what he means by a life that is worthy of the gospel. And so we're going to look at each of those phrases individually to deepen the unity that Paul is calling them to. First, he says, I want to see you standing firm. Standing firm here in the original language emphasizes that he wants them to stand firm in the midst of external pressures that they are facing. It's a military term uh, to stand firm, to stand strong when facing an enemy or opposition. The calling is one of their standing with their head held high to face the oncoming assault. Standing firm is united by a preposition to the next phrase, in one spirit. Standing firm in one spirit. The challenge is not only to stand firm, but together in one spirit. Although commentators argue, and commentators generally argue with each other, there is a general agreement that what is referred to here is standing firm together in the Holy Spirit. So Paul is essentially saying, stand firm together in one spirit that we share. Christians were brought together by Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and they can stand firm because they stood together. The next phrase he goes again, connected by a preposition, with one mind. The challenge not only being that they should stand together spiritually, but also in their thoughts and their attitudes. And he's not saying that we should all think the same, just before anybody goes off to that. Uh, and he's going to explain what sort of mind they're going to have in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, 
when they should consider others greater than themselves. But here he's saying to focus their internal faculties in the thing that they are facing. Here, Paul continues his emphasis and description on the necessity for unity in the face of external pressures. And he concludes with this phrase, striding, striving side by side. Paul quickly returns to the military language. Striving here is similar to the language used for moving armies. I love like Civil War stuff or like World War II stuff. You can ask my brother, because ever since I was a kid, I would always like bother him with like random facts. But they're like movement of armies. That's sort of what he's saying. He's challenging them that a life that is worthy of the gospel is tied with our common mission and our common movement to the fact that we are standing firm together in the Holy Spirit of one mind towards a common goal in the midst of adversity. The adversity they face is unclear. Paul never explains it. He just says that it's similar to his, as you see in verse 30. We don't know who their opponents are. We just know that they have them. The goal that they have, Philippians and Paul, is the same. He challenges them to strive together for the gospel. He unites them not only in their essence as Christians, but in their mission. As they face adversity, he reminds them that together, they face the opposition because of the gospel. Is that strange? Is that what you would say to your friends that were struggling? Consider what he's doing. He's explaining that a life worthy of the gospel, and he spends time explaining to them that they need to stand firm together in the midst of adversity. And I think the key to that entire thought of verses 27 through 30 is found in verse 29. He says, it has been granted to you not only to believe, but to suffer for the sake of Christ. He does not make an excuse for the fact that they're suffering. He does not skirt the subject. He does not avoid the question. He acknowledges the fact. Second, he reminds them that they're not suffering alone. Not only are they united to Christ by their belief, but they are also in Christ, united to each other. They stand shoulder to shoulder in the midst of suffering. He does not promise them a quick relief. He does not promise them a sudden fix, but he does encourage them to unity. Third and finally, the suffering is associated with belief. They are suffering because they believe in Jesus. But because they believe in Jesus, they can stand firm in the midst of suffering. They are tempted to walk away from the gospel and each other. But Paul encourages them to encourage each other. That in the gospel, they can have unity through adversity. Um, I think like a couple weeks ago, uh, I was having dinner with some friends and one of my friends was visiting. And we're just telling stories. And at one point, he turns to me and he says, you don't share. Like, you need to share more. And I was like, I was taken aback because I thought I was sharing. <laughs> I thought I was being open. Uh, it sort of led me, and I haven't asked Luke if I could share the story, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, it sort of led me to a crisis of confidence because the next morning, I came in and I pretended to ask Luke some administrative question. And then, uh, if you know me, I like transition subjects really quickly. 
And uh, then I said, hey, man, do you think I share? And like, he was like, and then if you know Luke, like when you ask him a deep question, he stood up and then he started pacing and he does this thing where he starts like thinking. It's almost like he's rapping, but it's this whole thing. And just having that interaction and that reflection and, you know, he said, you know, I'm cautious and we had this whole, a really good conversation about it. But my point being this, I think it is hard for me to share. I think it is hard to be open sometimes, especially if I'm suffering, especially if things aren't going well. Um, and how important and valuable it has been to have people in my life that I can share. In this life, we suffer, Christian and non-Christian alike. There are entire philosophies built upon that premise. There are, I believe, a few sorrows as terrible as suffering alone. Not only are you suffering, but to feel like no one stands with you. To face adversity and not see anyone by your side. Although there can be moments where we feel alone. In Christ, we never walk alone. It is rather easy to fall into the trap where we think that we have no one to walk with. We can feel like no one understands us, understands what we're going through, or feel like we have no support. Not only do we as Christians have our advocate who stands before the Father in heaven, but even here, Paul reminds them that they stand together. The invitation of the gospel does not only unite us to Christ, but in Christ, we are united to each other. We are not standing at arm's length, but as Paul reminds us, we stand together and we stand firm. So this serves as both a challenge and an encouragement to us. So first, a challenge. A challenge to stand together. We all face difficulty in our life, and some are better at, at expressing it than others. Some don't share. Some share too much, right? In difficulty, we can be tempted to not share anything or not want people to share anything with us. So we can face the difficulty of not desiring to enter into the struggle of another or not to welcome those into our struggle or our adversity that we face together. This passage challenges us. How many of us suffer in silence? Or how many times have you seen someone suffering and you choose not to say anything? We are united in Christ, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together. So first, to those who do not want to let anyone enter into your struggle, it's okay to share. It is okay to share your adversity. Although there may be a litany of issues why you do not want to talk about it, it's okay to share your sorrows. We are united in Christ. We are one body striving together. If perhaps you have been mistreated and feel afraid to share those things, we are a fallible people. And it is possible that in the past, people have not responded well. I understand that it's hard to share things, especially certain things. And I cannot promise you that everyone will always respond well. But this passage gives us courage. It's okay. It's okay to share your sorrows. In the Psalms it says, speaking of the Lord, you have kept my count of all my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? We are not alone. We stand together. 
To those that fear and admittedly do not want to enter into the suffering of another, a challenge. Life is messy, but we are called to be together. We are a part of this body and we move forward together. It is important to bear with one another and to face adversity together. It is difficult to know what to say or there may be a fear about things getting messy or you may be afraid of saying the wrong thing, um, but it's okay. It's okay if you don't know what to say. Sometimes people just need a listening ear, an honest opinion, an exhortation, a gentle word, or even a smile. People are messy and we're messy too. It is what God calls us to and it is a way that we reflect the beauty of our Savior in the gospel. Because of the gospel, we are united in the midst of adversity. It is not only a challenge, but also an encouragement. For when we face suffering, that in that day, remember, we are not alone. That the community of the body of Christ stands together. Not only us here, but those who have come before. We stand, as the book of Hebrews says, with a long line of witnesses. Let us be encouraged by the God who neither abandons his people in the midst of trouble, nor leaves them be. We live in a time of relative peace, but that is not promised to every generation. What is promised to us and to our posterity is that God is good and his promises are true. That as those that have trusted by the Sea of Galilee face their struggles, we too may face difficulties, but God is still good and we stand together in him and in him alone. So that is, we stand together in the midst of adversity because of the gospel. Second point, in the gospel, we can have courage through adversity. So we continue looking at verse 28, and I'll read it again in case you forgot. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't. Uh, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He continued to them, he continued telling them to cl by clarifying that they should not be afraid of their opponents or adversaries. This is important and we're gonna linger on verse 28 for the rest of this point and really for the rest of the sermon. First, in that no way should Christians be intimidated or feel fearful of their adversaries. And then he goes into this really interesting and complicated description of destruction and salvation, which I thought was rather strange. But we are going to deal with the second part when he talks about destruction and salvation first. And then we're going to return to the first part, why he tells them not to be afraid. So first, in the original language for the second part, the verse is rather confusing which has led to some confusion among translations. So if you have different translations, they're gonna say different things here. There is no adverb for destruction, right? There's no clarifier. So it is rather ambiguous whose destruction is being referred to. Most translations add their, their destruction, meaning the adversary's destruction there. That's what the ESV does uh, to make the meaning clearer, but we're gonna evaluate, right? Because I think that a more accurate translation, I know it's rare for me to ever say I disagree with the ESV, but I disagree with the ESV in this particular verse because the New King James, I know, New King James Version, uh, translates it like this. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, 
but to you of salvation and that from God. The difference is slight, but it's important to emphasize. One says that the fact that you're fearless against your adversaries means, right, that that's proof to them that they will be destroyed and proof to you that you will be saved. That's what the ESV says. But the New King James is saying this, when you stand fearless before your adversaries, they think you're going to be destroyed, but you should be assured that you're going to be saved. That's what Paul is saying. What I think the text is saying is when your adversaries see you suffering or being persecuted, to them, they see perdition. They see your destruction. They consider you a fool for not being afraid in the midst of adversity. To them, it means that you will be destroyed, but to you, it's an assurance of salvation. That from their perspective, your fearlessness is a sign of destruction, but to you, it's an assurance of grace and not a salvation that comes from God. That's what Paul is saying. Now we can tackle the first part of the verse. Paul challenges them to be fearless in the face of their opponents, not because they themselves are mighty, but because their salvation is secured in Christ. God is saving them. They are bold not on the basis of their works, but their bold works overflow from their security in their salvation. The first point showed the unity of the church that they could have in the face of adversity because of the gospel. Here we see the boldness they can have in the face of adversity because of the gospel. They stand on solid ground. And even if their adversaries for a time gain an upper hand and cause them even greater trouble, they stand assured in their salvation. God is the one who is saving them. That is why in verse 29, he can again mention the fact that they are called to suffer. And in verse 30, Paul equates his struggle with theirs. They are called to be, a bold, to be bold in the face of adversity because of the gospel. Because they are saved, they can be fearless, just like Paul. One of the most common exhortations in scripture is to not be afraid. But if we take a minute to think about how we fall into fear, what, does, what happens? Fear or courage reveals to us the things that we value. Here specifically, Paul encourages them and us not to be afraid in the face of adversity. He doesn't clarify who their opponents are. And I think that's on purpose. In this life, we face troubles of many kinds. We can all agree on the importance or the necessity to be courageous in the face of adversity, but what does that mean? And how can we do it? So I first want to start by saying what courage in the face of adversity is not. Courage in the face of adversity is not the equivalent of facing life with a stiff upper lip. The Bible does not call us uh, to a life of stoicism or impassibility. It is not ignoring the problems that we face with pleasant platitudes. There are plenty of lamentations and prayers in the Psalms that give room for us to express our concerns and our fears. Ignoring problems is not the same thing as facing them with courage. Also, pretending like the external pressures do not affect us is not the same thing as facing it with courage. The second thing that it is not 
is trying to face adversity courageously by our own strength. We can be tempted as we hear this passage to think that we're called to be courageous and try to produce it. You know what I'm talking about? Like if somebody tells you you need to be more patient and then you're like, oh, like it doesn't work, right? Like, and the same thing. When Paul calls people in his letters to do something, he does not leave them without a resource. When God commands us to do something, he provides the means through which we do it. It is in the promises found in Jesus Christ which give us the courage to face the difficulties and the challenges of life. The thing which powers our courage is not our own ability or strength. It's not how wise or how smart or how capable we are. If you rely on such things, you will be left disappointed. Smiling, although you want to cry, is not the same thing as facing the difficulties, the adver adversities, and the opponents of life with courage. So if facing adversity with courage is not just pretending that nothing is wrong, nor is it producing courage based on your own strength, what does it look like for us to have it? We can admit that there are real problems and pressures in life. I'm sure there are plenty of problems and pressures here. Things that we share and things that we don't. Paul did not ignore the fact that the Philippians had adversaries. Not only that we can have courage in the face of those adversaries because, of our, because the promises are ours in Jesus Christ. We don't have to have a stiff upper lip, but we can hold our head with dignity because of the promises of God in the gospel. We can have courage. Those things which God promises, he will surely accomplish. The reason that we can face the adversities and the opponents of life with courage is found, and this is a PCA church after all, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. There is a question that I love in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's question 26. It says, how does Christ fulfill or execute his office as king? And it's, the answer is this. Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. It may sound dorky, but when I was memorizing this, I think I cried. Why? I was like, why am I so emotional about this Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 26. Um, and I thought about someone who not only rules us, but defends us. Someone who takes up our cause. Someone who stands up for you. And if you've never had anybody do that, you understand. Christ is our king. That is why we can face the adversities and the opponents of life with courage. Because we have one who lifts up our cause. That gives us courage. That's why we can have dignity in the midst of adversity. Because our salvation is secure in him. We can face the gossip of others and know that God will still lift up our head. We can recognize the loss of an opportunity and at the, at the same time know that our lives are in the hands of a mighty creator. We can mourn illness and trust that in the end, God will make our bodies whole. We can cry at the face of death and still trust that God in the end will wipe away all of our tears.
and the sting of death will be no more. We are a people who live in the already and the not yet. That is why we can face adversaries and opponents with courage. Because although our situation is real and sorrowful, our joy is coming. In this life, we may face much trouble, but we can take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And in the end, he will wipe away all of our tears. So we hold our heads high. We can be courageous. We can face problems standing firm on the solid promises of God. In the gospel, we can face adversity in unity, meaning because Jesus saves us, we can stand together, not apart when trouble comes. In the gospel, we can face adversity with courage, meaning that because Jesus saves us, we can hold our heads high in dignity when trouble comes. Because of Jesus, we can face adversity in unity and in courage. That's how Paul responds to those who are struggling. That's how Paul responds to Christians. That's how we respond. That is the story of the gospel. I thought of another example that would bring the point home. And it's of a man named David Powelson, who, if you know Luke at all, he loves David Powelson. He was a professor at Westminster and at this place called CCEF. Uh, but as he was dying, he wrote this book. And this is a quote from this book. David Paulson writes, six months ago, I was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. As I write, I am facing the real possibility of my own death. As I reflect on this last battle, I can see that the Lord has been preparing me for this battle through my whole life. Since the first day the Lord invaded my heart with his mercy and grace, I have never lost that sense of the friendship of Jesus, that he showed love to the loveless to make them lovely, that he befriended the friendless, self-absorbed and all about themselves. That is the gospel of peace. My feet are fitted for this battle with my final enemy, so I do not lose heart. This is what the whole Bible is about. It's about life and death. It's about what is going to happen to you when you die. It's about right and wrong, true and false, hope and despair, obedience and recklessness, faith and idolatry. This is the drama that we and those we minister to are living in. And the miracle is that we are given a new heart, a heart of flesh and a new spirit so that we can and will live forever. What a privilege it has been for me to serve my faithful savior these many years. What a privilege it has been to walk with others in need and what a joy it will be to see him face to face. That's courage. So let us go forward together with courage that even if we were to face our final enemy, we can hold our heads high knowing that our lives are hidden in Christ Jesus and in him all of our treasures are stored. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can gather here and look into your word. You know all of our difficulties and struggles. Help us, Lord, to stand together, to support one another as we face things individually and corporately, as things in the culture and history may shift and wane. 
we know that you are the God of history, that you are the one who has carried your people, that you are the king who subdues us to himself, who defends us, and who will conquer. And so we wait for you, Lord. We trust in you because we know that you are good and gracious. Help us to live lives that confess of your mercy and grace. Help us to be gentle um, in the face of adversity, that our peace and our strength, even in the midst of sorrow, is in you. And so we look to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.